first paper after joining AEI was a study of the data about the relative importance of technical and non-technical skills in career success. For simplicity's sake, think of technical skills as things like coding or welding. Non-technical skills go under a bunch of different names. For economists, they're called non-cognitive skills. For workforce development professionals, they're called soft skills or professional skills. Educators call them social and emotional skills. I like to call them implicit skills because they aren't so much taught in a formal sense as they are caught informally in our family and social lives. The competing terminology tells us something. These skills, whatever we call them, can be slippery and hard to define, teach, and measure. In the context of advancing technology, artificial intelligence, and automation, they are also becoming more vital by the day, in large part because they are so hard for computers and robots to replicate. Recognizing them and building them into our educational and workforce training networks is increasingly critical, especially for individuals who come from disadvantaged backgrounds and need more help making connections to the workforce and meaningful, well-paid careers. This week on Hardly Working, I'm talking with David Deming, a professor of economics at the Harvard Kennedy School and one of the nation's leading authorities on non-cognitive skills. He's published empirical studies on how these skills inform career success and how programs like Head Start, while they may not deliver immediate results, appear to have a strong positive impact on non-cognitive skills when participants reach adulthood. David also leads the Malcolm Wiener Center on Social Policy at Harvard and has overseen the launch and development of the new Harvard Skills Lab. David Deming, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me, Brent. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to see you. As you know, this podcast, we try to focus on employment and work and skills. We do a little bit of work around reentry and other you know, sort of disadvantaged populations. I always like to start by asking our guests to kind of talk about their own lives and their own career trajectories and how they got to where they are. So how does one become a professor at Harvard University and what are the steps along the way for all of those out there in the audience who might be aspiring to become a Harvard professor? So I'll do what most people do with questions like this, which is I'll reconstruct a narrative that makes sense ex post. I'm not sure it really made sense to me at the time when I was doing it, but I'll, I'll try to like tell the story in retrospect in a way that makes sense. So, I mean, I became a professor at Harvard kind of by accident. I was, when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I took the LSAT. I was kind of mentally preparing to go to law school. And then before I did that, I decided, well, let me just work for a year at a law firm and see what I think. And I worked at a, a big law firm in DC for a year. And I enjoyed the job, but I just realized it wasn't for me and decided, okay, well, maybe I've always been interested in politics. Like maybe I'll be kind of a policy wonk or work in DC to think tank or something. And so I went back to get my master's in public policy at the Goldman School at UC Berkeley and went there intending to you know, work for the government or work in a think tank or something. And when I was there, it's a relatively small school and I got to know some faculty and they said, hey, you, know, you seem like you like research, like maybe you should give this a try. And I kind of got involved with some research when I was there and wrote a paper as part of a summer internship I did. And I applied to get my PhD at the same time as I was applying for jobs. I was actually going to be trying to be a presidential management fellow, which is a program for people who want to work in the federal government. And I, had, I was thinking about applying to some you know, DC jobs. And I also applied to the Harvard Kennedy School for, to get my PhD. And I applied to Princeton and Michigan and a couple of other places, Berkeley. And I just thought, well, if I get in, this is great. And if I don't, that's okay too. I'll go do something else. And I ended up get, you know, getting into the Kennedy School's program and, and a couple others and decided to come here and just kind of, 
I don't know, like I went on the job market to get a faculty job and I had a young kid and thought, again, like I really want to be an academic. It seems like a great job. I really enjoy research. I've had a lot of jobs that I didn't enjoy. And so by comparison, I just like this one a lot more. And so I really wanted to do it. But I thought, listen, I, you know, I need to provide for my family at some point. And so I wasn't going to do the kind of forever postdoc thing, but I was very fortunate to get a job at Carnegie Mellon. And then I was able to come back to Harvard. So it's a long way of saying, Brent, it all kind of happened one step, one haphazard step at a time. And I'm just really grateful. I feel really blessed and lucky to be in the situation I'm in. And I wake up every morning giving thanks for the bounty that life has provided me. And, you know, in some sense, trying to spread that elsewhere and trying to do for others what many people did for me, which was help me along the way. Yeah. So let's talk about that just a little bit, because I'm always interested in influences and who it is that kind of helps people along the way, because nobody does this on their own. Who were the big influences on you in terms of navigating this sort of serendipitous journey that you've been on? Yeah. So I think when I was in grad school at Harvard, my advisors, each in their own way, had a really important influence. So Sue Donarski, who is at University of Michigan and is actually now coming back to Harvard this year, which is great, was the faculty member I probably became personally closest with in my time at Harvard and was like a mentor to me in ways that really mattered. You know, let me present a paper that we co-authored together. So I get to know people, introduce me to people at conferences, push me to redefine some sloppy thinking and writing at times. And and was just kind of the mentor for me. Also a mentor was Larry Katz, my, I guess, formal advisor. And his work has been so influential in the way I think. And I kind of aspire to, to be like him in a lot of ways. And he's such a generous person, has advised so many economists, including me, and still work close today. And then Sandy Jenks was just incredible for me in, in, in thinking about doing the kind of work that has broad public impact, you know, not just writing in your niche or your subfield, but thinking broadly about big questions about education and skills and inequality. And, you know, I aspire to write like him, which is to write in a way that makes people care about the work you're doing who aren't specialists. And so each of those folks had an important influence on me. And then recently, I think I'm really inspired by the work of people like David Otter, people who try to take on big questions that are affecting people. And I'm not going to say that I'm able to do that as successfully as, you know, Larry and David and Sue and others, but I'm certainly trying. I'm trying to do work that matters. And I take my inspiration from the people who come before me who are doing that now. So how does this experience influence your your own life as a mentor to others? Yeah, it's a great question, Brent. I try to be a gardener and not a carpenter. You know, this is from Alison Gopnik, the book about childhood. You want to be a gardener you know, plant seeds and water them and give them the good conditions and watch them grow rather than trying to create David Deming clones as advisees and tell people exactly what to do. Because I think ultimately this is a creative job and you, you succeed in, in scholarship, academia, even outside of academia in this kind of work by coming up with new ways of thinking about old problems and new ways of contributing to fields. And that requires some individual inspiration. You can't give it to people and it's not necessarily healthy to try to just you know, tell people, well, you should do the work I'm doing because I don't have time to do it. So you should be a clone of me. And that's, that's not the approach I take. I try to like take chances on people and see and help people find their own inspiration. And I try to get to know my advisees and junior faculty I work with enough to know what motivates them. And then I try to help them succeed in what they want to do rather than just convince them to do what I think is interesting. I try, you know, <laughs> obviously like I have things I'm interested in and anytime someone wants to work with me on the same problems I'm interested in, I get excited about that, but I try not to impose it on others. So we'll eventually get to the substance of this interview, but I do want to ask one more question along these lines, which is when you're working with undergrads, what do you tell them about what a good education looks like? What a great question. So reflecting on my own story is one of, as I said, it's very haphazard and I made a lot of mistakes and was able, was given the space to recover from them. And I think 
in some sense, it's a privilege to get second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And people are capable of so much. And so I try to be generous with students and tell them, take risks and count on the people in your life who are mentoring you and advising you to understand that you've taken some risks and that that means sometimes you won't succeed. You know, and if, if every, it's sort of like if everything you do is a success, you're probably not pushing yourself enough. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but I think it's really important to give students and young people to make them feel okay about taking intellectual risks, writing outside of your comfort zone, thinking outside of your comfort zone. Because at the end of the day, like for scholarship, that's what we're really trying to do is like most of the work we do won't end up mattering. It won't, you know, but we work, we toil in the hopes that somewhere somebody will read something we write that has an actual influence on people's lives. And who am I to say what the right path is? I've tried to pass on some wisdom here and there, but it might be that when I'm telling a student, hey, you should actually do this, that I'm wrong and they're right. I try to model that by being willing to change my mind and hopefully they'll do the same. I think that's so interesting because particularly in this day and age, when parents are worrying about the future of their children and their economic prospects, I think that the impulse is to have them narrow and focus in early, try to get something that connects to the labor market almost immediately. And there really isn't much tolerance at all for failure and for trying things that don't work out. And I worry about that, that we're undermining and we're limiting people in ways that we shouldn't be and that we should be encouraging this kind of experimentation. So I agree. And I think it's, you know, it's dangerous to extrapolate from one's own experience too much. But for me, the secret to my success is that I've done enough things that I didn't like and wasn't that good at to know that I've really hit the lottery here. I really enjoy my job. I really enjoy doing research. I think I'm good at it, even though I'm not good at other things. And so I just get excited about it because I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I never would have discovered that if I hadn't done a bunch of other things. You know, I worked on all kinds of jobs, landscaping, construction. I washed cars. I worked as a waiter. I spent a summer installing air conditioning louvers at the Holiday Inn in Fort Wayne, like just all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, worked at a law firm. And those were valuable experiences because I was like, man, I'm, this is not fun and I'm not good at it. And it's not enjoyable. And some of the things you know, were better than others. But that gives me inspiration because I'm just like, wow, I've really found my niche, the job that accentuates my strengths and hides my weaknesses. That's awesome. It makes me think of my first real job, which was working on a potato farm, moving irrigation pipe. And that taught me that I never, ever wanted to work outside again. That was not something I was gifted for. So. I think about it anyway. a lot, Brent, because I think for we need to design policy that is forgiving of people. You know, the reality mm-hmm. is I was lucky that people in my life and institutions like Berkeley and Harvard were willing to take a chance on me, even though I didn't have the linear path. And I don't think we should take it for granted as a society that everyone's going to get that. And, and I think it's also true that, you know, people who look like me and talk like me get more chances. And that's not fair either. And so I think we should just try to be a more forgiving society. And actually, one thing I like about it, I mean, I think America... America's institutions, our educational institutions are more forgiving than many other countries. And I think that's a strength that we should lean into. Yeah, no, that's a very good word. And I think about that topic a lot in a lot of different policy areas. And I think about, you know, the fact that people from disadvantaged backgrounds, the risks are so much higher for them of making mistakes. And I think that society is generally less forgiving of the kinds of mistakes that they make. People who are in the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. We're just stacking up burdens on top of people. So I think it's an extremely important point. We do need to continue to cultivate this idea of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. We all need to be able to fail. And that includes poor people. So 
Let's talk about the project, the Harvard University Project on Workforce. Can you walk us through what that is, what sort of its key focus areas are, and what makes it different? Because there's a lot of future of work kinds of projects out there right now. Yeah. So the Project on Workforce is a multi-school collaboration at Harvard. Its project leads are me at the Kennedy School, Joe Fuller, who's at the Business School, and Peter Blair at the Harvard School, Graduate School of Education. And we're a team of, of folks that are essentially, if I had to put, you know, put it into one phrase, we're trying to create better and smoother pathways from education and training institutions into the labor market to help people get into family-sustaining careers. You know, so not just first jobs, but like into tracks that oftentimes may not be ones where you get a traditional college education, although they can be, but that are actually leading to good paying jobs and stable careers. And our perspective on this is U.S. focused, except that we take seriously the fact that the U.S. relative to other countries seriously underinvests in job training in, in basically the connective tissue that brings education and skills investments together with the workforce, you know, the kind of intermediary institutions that help people get trained for jobs, help people retrain when they want to transition, help people take time out when they need to go back to school and things like that. And we just don't, we spend about 20% as a share of our GDP, 20% of what other OECD countries do on so-called active labor market policies, which includes wage subsidies, training subsidies, you know, reskilling type programs, all, all, all the manner of things. We just don't take it seriously as a nation. And what that means is when people get laid off or when people want to go get retrained, it's very hard for them to do that. And people end up mismatched with jobs that don't really make use of their full capacities and skills. And that's a tremendous waste of human potential. And one we're trying to solve through a variety of approaches. I think one is basic research. So we have an initiative we call the Skills Lab, which is an effort to try to take what people think of as soft skills and make them hard skills, make, you know, study them, understand them, understand how they can be developed and measured. So we have some work trying to figure out who's a good team player. How do you figure out who's, who's a good contributor to a group project? Some other work on leadership and some work on learning transfer. How do you learn things in one context and transfer to the other and things like that? That's the academic side. And then we have some work that's much more in the field. It's policy and practice oriented. We've and I can talk more about that. We developed this tool called Skillbase that helps get people connected to foundational skills programs and get back into work. We have a number of partnerships with organizations at the federal, state, and local levels, working with colleges. We're doing a variety of projects, you know, placing students from Harvard across the different schools in organizations that do this work and building communities of learning and communities of practice that can take lessons from each other. So we're, we're, we're kind of operating at multiple levels and trying to solve this big problem by taking many different bites at the apple. So there's a lot in there, obviously, and you guys are doing, you know, in addition to this, the basic research, which has to be done, this sort of hands-on practical stuff. And I want to talk about that. I really want us to get into the skills lab work and just talk about that because you've written extensively on the labor market value and function of non-cognitive skills or what's called soft skills in yeah. the workforce world. So just give us an overview of what you have learned about that topic, which is extensive. I realize you've got a lot there, but what are these things we call non-cognitive skills and why are they important? Yeah. So let's start with the, with the terminology because I think it's really telling. So the two terms you used are non-cognitive skills and soft skills. Those things are not very descriptive. And I think that's on purpose, actually. I think that's an umbrella term that we use to describe capacities that we don't fully understand. 
and can't get our arms around that are not really taught or emphasized in traditional educational settings, right? So nothing about Harvard's a wonderful institution. There's not that much about Harvard that teaches you how to be good in a team. But employers really want that because work is incredibly team-based. And I don't want to pick on Harvard. Every school is like this. Grades are very individualized. Classes are very individualized. But employers want people who they can slot into high-functioning teams. And that's a critical skill for succeeding in work. And we're not really teaching it, certainly not deliberately teaching it in school. And so, you know, we, we embarked on a study, which I can tell you about, that is trying to scientifically essentially measure, like when you have a team functioning, you drop somebody into that team, does that team on average contribute more to the, you know, more or less to the functioning of the team, independent of their own skills. So like, if you had a chess playing team, and you added a chess grandmaster to the team, the grandmaster is going to make the team better, not because they're a good team player, because they're good at chess. So you have to have some strategy for kind of taking out individual skills and saying, look, are there certain people who are like, you know, in sports, they call it a glue guy, right? Somebody who just makes the team function better, who facilitates communication, encourages their teammates to exert more effort, who understands where they fit in. Like if Brent and I are going to write a paper together, the division of labor would be different than if I'm going to write a paper with my grad school advisor, Larry Katz. You know, like I might do the data analysis when you and I are writing it together and, and then I might not with Larry or something like that, right? So, or with one of my own students. And so do you understand how you can fit in and how you complement the roles that your team is playing? And that's just something that isn't really emphasized or, I mean, there's lots of people who study teams, but we're really trying to kind of isolate, well, what is it that makes an individual good on a team? So that, that's one example. I think non-cognitive soft skills is just sort of a term that shows our lack of scientific understanding. And I know that I'm an egghead, and so I'm always going to say more research is needed. But here's, here's a field where there's a lot of case study work, and there's a lot of examples of certain soft skills training programs that worked in certain settings for certain groups of people. So there's lots of kind of success cases out there, but not much of a unifying framework for understanding why some things work when they do and what lessons can we draw that are larger than the individual setting. And so that's, that's the kind of project we're taking on is, is trying to say, is there something about people that makes them good at a team? Can that skill be taught? Can it be developed? How do we do that? It's right? so, we talked about the like, mechanics of how we figured it out, which I'd, I'd be delighted to do, but that's the basic idea. I mean, it's just a topic that I have been running into really for decades since I worked in the administration, the Bush administration at the Department of Labor of we have reams of data from employers telling us that what they really need are the people with this constellation of skills that equip workers to be good team players, essentially, you know, the ability to contribute through team to communicate well with coworkers and with customers. And yet it seems like, I don't know if you agree with us or not, but it just seems like our entire educational approach is really geared to, you know, the development of kind of narrower technical skills. And so there's like, it's like the market is talking past the education establishment on this. The answer is always more technical skills. Let's do more of this kind of training and narrow skills. Why hasn't the market signal broken through, do you think, to the education training? I think it's because when you ask an employer what they need, they're going to tell you what they need right now, today. And actually, there are some skills like being good in a team that are valuable everywhere. So no employer is going to pay to have their employee develop that skill because they can leave and take it elsewhere. So the more general a skill is, the less you're going to find any particular employer willing to subsidize their employees to get trained in that skill. Whereas like if there's only one 
auto parts factory in town, you might be willing to subsidize a welding program at a community college because you're not worried that person's going to leave and, and take it elsewhere. And so that's why I think the markets. And, and then I think the other reason is that our education system is kind of purpose built for a time when work was really different, that you know we needed to mass produce literacy and numeracy skills so that people could work in factories at, at the dawn of the industrial revolution in, in the US. And, and obviously things have changed since then, but they haven't changed all the way. And I think if you were to design an education system from scratch today, it would look different than the way it looks now. And like things are, you know, people, we're all status quo biased. And so I think it's hard, it's hard to move all the way in the direction that we think we need to move in. So in some sense, the project on workforce is like trying to push, you know, speed up the change cycle to the extent that we can. So tell me how the skills lab then is doing its work. What are the projects underneath that? Where are you trying to drive it right now? Yeah, so we have one finished paper. That's the one I mentioned about team players. That paper is under review at an academic journal. And I'll just tell you briefly what we found. So the way we designed it was as a lab experiment where we gave people a problem-solving task that they first had to do individually. So actually a series of different problem-solving tasks. And that was our way of measuring. So you know, you would come into the lab in stage one and you would take a bunch of tests and we'd figure out how good you are at this task by yourself. And then we would bring you into the lab in the second step and randomly assign you to a team of three people. And we would have the team do some very close analog of that same task as a group. It's not exactly the same. It's a different test item, et cetera. But we have that. And that, what that means is given that we know the skills of the three people in the first step, we can make a pretty good prediction about how well the team's going to do in the second step. But of course, sometimes the team does better or worse than you predict. That could be chance or it could be because the team works better together. So with only one team assignment, we can't tell. Is it if Brent's team does better than we would predict, is it because of Brent or is it because of Brent's other two teammates or is it because of some chemistry between them? So what we do then is we take you and we randomly assign you to a different team and have you do the same thing and then a different team. And then we just keep doing that over and over again so that you're assigned to a team with members A and B and then C and D and then E and F and then all those people are mixed around. And if every time Brent gets put on a team, the team does better than you predict, then Brent's a team player. Because independent of Brent's own skills that we've measured in the first step, he's making the teams do better, better than you would otherwise guess. And we did something called pre-registration, which means we wrote down exactly how we were going to do this and how we were going to do the measurement and everything ahead of time and submitted it to the American Economic Association trial registry so that you wouldn't have to worry about you know, publication bias or anything like that. And what we found was that the only capacity that was associated with being a team player was your score on a test of emotional intelligence called the reading the mind and the eyes test. This is a test that's widely used to diagnose people with high functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome. It's basically a series of items where you show people like a box with their eyes and you have to correctly identify the emotion they're expressing. People who are better at doing that on a 26 item test are better team players, according to our study. It was not in contrast related to your IQ. So people who score higher on a, on a IQ tests called the Raven's Progressive Matrices weren't better team players on average. It also wasn't associated with demographic characteristics like age, race, ethnicity, or gender. And it wasn't associated with these things called the big five personality scores. So conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, things like that. So, so you, it worked you, out in a really interesting way, which is why I told you we pre-registered it. So you wouldn't think we happened to find, you know, we did this experiment 10 times. And I only reported the one that worked out the way we wanted. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> so I'm curious. Did you see any correlation between high IQ and people scoring lower on the mind and eyes test? No, actually, we found they were modestly positively correlated, about 0.2. Correlated. Okay. Yeah, they were positively correlated. Right. And that's consistent, by the way, with other meta-analyses in psychology, where they find that 
measures of emotional intelligence and you know, IQ are, are typically modestly positively correlated. Our next experiment is about leadership. That's something we, we're doing now, right in the field now, where we're essentially trying to, we're giving, it's like the team players experiment in the sense that it's group-based, but we give people who are leaders a different set of, we basically give them, all of them a problem-solving task, but not everybody observes everything they need to observe to do it. So they have to work together. And the leader is sort of responsible for making sure the team does well. The, the people who are not leaders, who are just team members, are basically being paid for participation, whereas the leaders are, are being paid more when they do better. So their job is to motivate, both to motivate the people on the team, and then also to figure out who should be doing what by giving them different assignments. So that's another example of measuring leadership skills. We're doing some work on learning transfer, as I mentioned, which is, you know, if you learn something in one context, how do you apply it to different contexts, which is a very important skill, obviously, if you want to transition to different jobs. And then some work also on, on decision-making. In particular, how do you update your beliefs about what action you should take when you get more information? You know, so you ask people, well, should you, you know, invest in this project or, or this business or that business? Or, you know, should I choose this job or that job? And then you vary the amount of information you give people and you see how they, how they change their, essentially their forecasts of what thing they should do. And you know, there's a lot of work on how people use information, whether people kind of display status quo bias and how they adapt to information. This is something that's incredibly important in the digital age where there's information everywhere. Like how do you acquire information and how do you update your beliefs based on it? So this is just an example of like, the thing about this work, Brent, is that I'm going to tell you, okay, here's my definition of social skills, or here's my definition of leadership. And you're going to say, that doesn't seem quite right. Like we should do this way instead. And I'm like, that's fine. Let's have that argument. Defining it staking a claim on this is my measurement and then giving you a result is the beginning of scientific inquiry, not the end. You know, so like, I'm fine if people think we're defining teamwork too narrowly, let somebody else do a different experiment and then we can argue about it, but it's better than just saying soft skills and kind of waving our hands and not really knowing what's going on. Which is a big problem in soft skills (laughs) because they are, as you said earlier, hard to get your arms around. The tendency is to sort of not just wave their hands, but wave them away and just say, Either they've got that or they don't have it. We can't do anything about it. So why are we discussing it? Let's then talk a little bit about skills base, which I, I find to be a really interesting concept. Does it relate to the skills lab directly or is it on a separate kind of track? Yeah. So skill base relates to skills lab in the sense that there are both initiatives that operate under the project and workforce. But skills base is much more applied. That is a tool that we, mostly the students at Harvard, built to try to help workers who have lost jobs or who want to transition to different careers acquire foundational skills that are useful in a variety of contexts. So it's not you know, teaching people specific things so they can do specific jobs. It's more like free, high-quality content that helps people learn conversational English. So they can work in front office retail jobs, whereas before they were working in a factory, or they can work in healthcare and and be patient facing. It's digital literacy. So that people who didn't used to work in offices because, you know, they didn't have a computer at home, they want to learn how to use Microsoft tools so that they can work office jobs. And the theory of action behind that is that those are the kinds of things that are underprovided by the market for all the reasons we were discussing earlier. You can find a coding bootcamp. You can find a program that'll teach you how to get, you know, Cisco software engineer certified or whatever. Those things exist. And people are generally willing to pay for them, especially the upper end of the market, because they lead directly to well-paying jobs. But they kind of take for granted the existence of these foundational skills. 
right? So if you don't have digital literacy skills, if you can't, if you're uncomfortable speaking conversational English, that closes off a lot of doors for you. So we basically curated all this content using a kind of quality rating system and said, here's of all the stuff that's available on the web, here are the best resources that are both free and high quality, according to our estimation. And we're going to build a very simple website that's accessible on a mobile device or on a desktop that you can go to and just do these modules and get, and get trained and then get some sort of, in some cases, some sort of certificate. But free and high quality were the two things we insisted on. And then we're working with some partners, for example, Massachusetts, working with the State Workforce Board, who is basically people who come and file for unemployment insurance and are looking for work, can get connected through job counselors to these resources. And we're working with the state and in conversations with other states and other settings and you know, other organizations trying to get the word out on this and connecting people to, to these resources. So it's principally right now with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You mentioned that you're talking with other states. How would states who are interested in this sort of find out more about it? Well, so we have a series of webinars coming up, actually. If you go to pw.hks.harvard.edu, backslash community of practice, where there are dashes in between. You can sign up for a community of practice webinar that, that basically helps people learn more about the resources that are available. And you can also send me an email or send an email through the Project and Workforce site. We built this intentionally so that it could scale up very easily. So, you know, right now we have several hundred visitors to the website a day, sometimes even a thousand or more. We could, I think, easily accommodate more than that. And we wanted it to, to be able to scale. And then eventually we're still talking with some other states and organizations, but we intend to build some more modules. So, you know, we had the three skills, conversational English, digital literacy, and resume and career search skills are the three that we started with. But we've talked with some other folks who say, I actually really want to add, you know, something on teamwork or whatever it is. There might be particular states or particular regions that are interested in others. And we would be happy to work with people to build things like that. We're hoping to grow. And we think that this is, we built this because we think this is not something that's being provided right now in the, in the, in the market. Like there's these isolated modules that we link to, but this kind of come here to get free training that a bunch of researchers at Harvard think is good. And this will help you get connected to careers and open up more opportunities for you. So this is really unfair and premature question, I'm sure. But if you had to guess at what the policy implications might be of some of what you're pursuing, both in the research and on the practice side, what do you think they would they would be? You know, I think one clear reason that we're doing this work and one reason why we think it's taking off is there's just a tremendous demand, a tremendous appetite amongst workers and amongst employers for this work. So better connections to skill development, to jobs. It's something that maybe for bureaucratic reasons, you know, we have a Department of Education and a Department of Labor, but we don't have something that connects the two. And, you know, these systems are quite fragmented across states. You know, these are not, these are just kind of historical accidents. We don't have much here. And it's also an area that's not very politicized. You know, everybody wants to be the jobs mayor or the jobs governor or the jobs legislator. And so I think there's tremendous ability to work in a nonpartisan way on these issues to basically build better connections to jobs. And so I think we're going to see more work along these lines at the state, local, and hopefully eventually the federal level. And I think people understand. The other reason is that people know that college, a traditional four-year college education is unfortunately out of reach for more and more people. And it's not okay to just say, hey, there's only 20% of people that are getting this, this degree. And that degree is the only way to be a middle-class 
member of society with a stable job. It's just not sustainable in the long run. And while we could work on bringing the cost of traditional college down, and that's important to do, we also need to work on the other end of it is like making not going to college more sustainable and more affordable. So I think for all those reasons, you're going to see a lot more of this work. I hesitate to say like, this is the model. I think there's too much of that in the space. Like everybody thinks like, well, this is the way we ought to do it. I think we ought to let a thousand flowers bloom and do a bunch of this work and see what sticks and see what people like, you know, even just from the skill-based work we've done, there were certain things I thought were really going to take off that didn't. And so I think it's just hard to predict like what, what speaks to people, what employers want to see, what do workers want to get trained in. And so I think we ought to just do a lot of it and see what works. Yeah, kind of going back to your analogy earlier of thinking of this as a garden rather than a construction site, just the need to cultivate a bunch of different approaches and see what flourishes, I think is exactly the right the right approach. I do want to pick up on this. You touched on it, but I want to go back to it, which is, I'm just going to give you my perspective on this, at least in the center-right world of workforce development, education training kinds of policymaking and sort of thinking about policymaking, there's kind of a perspective that's taken hold and it's very militant (laughs) from my perspective about we've gone too far with encouraging people to get bachelor's degrees. And what we really need to do is, it appears to me, actively discourage people from pursuing bachelor's degree in favor of other types of education training. So first of all, do you agree with that? And if you don't, what is your what's your perspective on sort of the long-term value of bachelor's degrees versus other kinds of education? Yeah, well, I, I don't agree, but I'm also realistic about the current situation we're in. So I think there's there's two different questions. One is, is it better to have a bachelor's degree for any individual than to not have one? The answer is yes, it is more than ever, just Why? in the data. So I think we can wish that the world was different, that society valued the trades more. But, you know, again, there are exceptions. So this is obviously on average. You know, there's people who are extremely successful who don't have a bachelor's degree. But the economic return to college is as high as it's ever been. And it shows no signs of going away. And so I think it's just inaccurate and, and misleading to tell people they don't need that a college degree isn't, isn't valuable. It's not true. Now, there's a different question, which is, why do we have the institutions we have? Why, why are we in this equilibrium? We need to change it. And there, I'm much more sympathetic. I think, and again, I think we need to operate on both sides. So college is too expensive. College does a poor job of teaching work-based learning, I would say. There's, there's not enough work-based learning. It doesn't mean that like, it has to be learning the trades. It could be you know, more emphasis on internships and actual work experience while you're in college. You know, making classroom work more project-based. You, you can make it more work-based without putting people in the workplace. You can make it more project-based. You can make it more team-oriented so that people directly learn and, and model the skills that are going to be valuable in the labor market. And we should do those things. You know, college curricula need to change to help prepare people for the workforce better. So in that sense, I'm sympathetic to the argument. And then I think on the other end, we need to say, look, it's not given the given that the price of college is not going to go down to zero anytime really soon, we're probably not going to have universally free college anytime soon. We ought to help people who can't make it through college or who are struggling or who don't want to go to college, you know, not make that basically a sentence for a lifetime of economic instability. You know, it's just recognize the reality that not everyone finishes college and that doesn't mean you're a bad person, that there ought to be good options available to you. So I guess like to me, the argument that you were, you were straw manning, but you were making is like, it's kind of like a, a, is wish casting. Like this idea Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, no one needs to go to college. It's not, it's not true. Now, 
That's an economic reality right now. We should work to make that reality less true today, tomorrow than it is today. But that's the way it is, you know, right now. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's somewhat influenced by the politics of the day. It sounds like a populist position to be against a bachelor's degree, even though it's, as you point out, the the data is kind of unequivocal on this point in terms of economic outcomes. So it just strikes me as I bristle at it. I get into Twitter wars on the question because the the resentment is so high with regard to college education not paying off. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what the data actually says. It doesn't pay off if you only go for three years and don't graduate. It doesn't pay off if you if you're going to a third or fourth rate institution that isn't going to help you to learn what you need to learn. But my sense is, as you articulated, it's really still the best deal in town, even at these inflated prices that students are having to pay. That's true. But you know, I think the anger at the system is completely justified because we have this thing we're calling a college education that we're saying is increasingly hard to pay for, but is increasingly necessary. And that's incredibly stressful for families. And so I understand where the anger is coming from. And I think that needs to change. So I don't want to sound blase about the whole thing. I, I think that the system is, is not sustainable and is in serious need of reform, but I would never extend that so far as to say to a young person, don't worry about it. A college degree isn't necessary anymore. I just, you know, I wish that were so. Actually, what I really wish was that we had priorities in our society so that everybody could get a high quality education. Not that it wasn't. The problem is only some people were getting it. I wish everybody could get it. And to me, that would be an investment that would pay off in the long run, although some folks disagree. So one related question on this, you mentioned earlier that you think college curricula need to change so that they're better aligned on a skills basis to the needs of the workforce, that you're getting whatever these things are, non-cognitive, soft, whatever we want to call them, the, the team orientation. But has there been any work done? I'm, I've just been turning this over in my head recently about work done on the bachelor's degree as a skills question. We think of bachelor's degrees almost exclusively in terms of content. I am majoring in as if I were acquiring some sort of subject matter expertise, which is not usually the case. But has anybody ever looked at the bachelor's degree from a skills angle to ask the question, what is it that people get out of those four years that's transferable? Yeah. So I think there's there's two ways to get at this. It's a very important question. There's two ways to get at it, one indirect and one more direct. So the indirect way is to just observe, as you and I have discussed before, that actually the economic return to applied degrees is very large initially, which is consistent with people's intuition. But what I think is less intuitive is that even a history degree pays off in the long run. And actually, people who major in subjects like history catch up to the technical majors over time. And so that really suggests that there is something more fundamental about a college education that sets you on a different trajectory that is quite general. It's not about like, oh, I learned how to be an engineer and I slotted into this job. It's actually, it's giving you some skills that are pretty broad and transferable. And so that's an indirect because we don't actually know what those skills are. We're just saying, look, if you just look at patterns in the data, like if if college were, if, if a BA were purely a signal and it had no skills content at all, it's hard to understand why that signal would persist for somebody's entire working life. You know, like, why do I care that you got a BA in history when I'm, when you're 20 years out? Like, what is it about that degree that actually makes you a better employee? Why would I, if I were hiring somebody and, and they were 20 years out from their college degree, I wouldn't care what college they went to. I would look at their resume, but still somehow these people seem to do better. 
anyway. And so I think that suggests there's something about what happens in college that is long lasting. I think the more direct way would be to measure the kind of skills. And I think there's these things like the collegiate learning assessment that are not, I don't think are very good measures of what actually happens in college. I mean, they're not wrong. They're just incomplete. I think it's really hard to summarize your learning in college by a kind of pen and paper test. And so I think there are ways to do this. I mean, here's one hypothesis. There's no evidence for this, at least not yet. I mentioned decision-making earlier. So one of the things that people say you learn in college is problem solving, abstract problem solving, like thinking about part of what you're learning is like, how do you take a bunch of information and categorize it and systematize it and draw inferences from it that are useful in other settings? So like transferring learning and like using information to make decisions, understanding abstract problems, making analogies across time and space. And I do think that the abstract learning you do in college helps you do that. And knowledge work, you know, if you're a management consultant or if you're a lawyer or if you're you know, work in business or something like you have to do a lot of those things. You know, why do they teach the case method in business school? It's not because those cases matter. It's because something about that approach helps you learn other things that are new that you can't anticipate. And so I think it's all, that sounds very squishy because it reflects the lack of rigorous research in this area. But I, something to me like that sounds like it's the truth. There's some truth in it. Very interesting. Okay. David, if people want to learn more about your work, where should they go? Well, so they can go to go to my website. You could Google me or you can go to scholar.harvard.edu backslash dDeming. That's me personally. You can go to the Kennedy School's webpage and go to the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy. I'm the faculty director of that center. And then you can also go to the Project and Workforce website, which is pw.hks.harvard.edu to learn more about the stuff I'm doing on workforce. That's terrific. And what about Twitter? Are you a... Yes, yeah, so I'm on Twitter as, as Prof. David Deming. Prof. Although David I, Deming. Okay. Yeah. Although, you know, various things have kept me less, less active than I used to be on Twitter, but I still, I still do post things. And I, I also write an occasional column for the New York Times. I wrote one last week about data sharing for the public good. And I posted a little tweet storm about it. If you don't want to read the article and you just want to read the storm. So. <laughs> yeah. I want to read the storm, not the article. Sounds good. Okay. Well, David Deming, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating, very helpful. We wish you the best of luck on the project. And I'll have you on sometime in the not too distant future to get an update on how things are going. Sounds great, Brendan. It was, it was great to talk with you and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.